You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? I'm not complaining. How are you? Good. Um, you know, I know we're going to be talking about this, but I feel like this 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 conversation marks a, a transition point in your own mission. Oh, good. I, think- I need one. My <laughs> mission needs one. Do you feel? Do you do you sense your 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 impending bodhisattvahood? Oh, you know, maybe we should uh, for 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 our non-Buddhist listeners explain that a bodhisattva is someone who is now. Now, is it technically like they're on the verge of enlightenment? They could have enlightenment; it's within their grasp. But enlightenment, true enlightenment, would take them away from their mundane mission of going around and helping people. So they refrain from getting fully enlightened and just entering nirvana and sp- spend their time helping pe- is that that's the idea right i think that's one conception of it right yeah. that they forego their own enlightenment to to put their energy well god into knows i've foregone my own enlightenment now how, how do i do the rest <laughs> now um, you go about helping everybody else <laughs> i mean I, I by foregone i don't mean i had the option uh i just mean i have uh, not achieved it um so okay so i'll go around helping each other uh helping everybody else okay Got it. But we, uh, but we, but that can that can be its own topic into this in this conversation. What a conception of enlightenment or awakening might involve, um, because I think that's part of your, um, your your uh, salvific message as a bodhisattva. I think it's relevant to my salvific message. We should say, by the way, that you're Josh Summers, and this is another in a series of conversations that we're calling the Dharma of Bob, uh, a name that I think you generously came up with and in any event are generously uh indulging me in uh in pursuing the topic um and you're globally famous yoga guru at least in your mind in, um, in my mind well that's what yeah. all, all everything i know of is happening in my mind so that doesn't distinguish it from anything else um and what so could you say a little more about uh, the evidence that I'm on the verge of bodhisattvahood? I'd love to be there. On the well, verge of the verge of enlightenment, I guess that would be. You know, as a, I should say first and foremost, you know, I, I've been a, a, a fan of yours for a while. And um, in reading your newsletters and listening to the conversations you have with other folks, in your last newsletter, which I'm not even sure if it was, that was a, a, a newsletter that went only to paid subscribers or was a, a general audience newsletter. That- but there was was only to pay. So this is a non-zero newsletter, and like everyone else on Substack, I recently created a paid edition, and in that, I've decided to do this thing where I'm kind of writing a book uh, tentatively titled The Apocalypse Aversion Project, or like working on a book, talking about the book and the writing of the book and trying to develop it within the confines of the paid newsletter. Sorry for that advertisement, but, but we're done. No, it's good. It's good context. So I, we, we've been getting sort of updates about the potential book project. And in the last uh, newsletter to that point, um, you know, I think you made the, the strongest case I've heard you make yet about the need for a kind of psychological evolution or a transformation of consciousness in humanity if the apocalypse is to be averted. Which is why I'm saying, suggesting you have a bodhisattvic, salvific message now. It's like you- I see. So the message, the message that I will uh, 
that I will promulgate during my impending bodhisattva phase is now clearer to you. Mm-hmm. Now all I have well, to no, do I, is. I think it's. I think it's. I think you're. I think you've been circling around it for a while, and 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 I think probably like me, you're you're there's a kind of a some uh, an allergy allergy in your own psyche that's 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 averse to making such grandiose pronouncements and things like that. So um, the fact that you're opening to that 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 kind of an idea that statement is, is yeah uh, is it's like it's like dharma of bob even i can only like accept that because bob is the kind of name that makes the phrase so obviously ironic right right there's a, there's a there's like a, if, it, if my name were sebastian or, or or some like you know eastern sounding name you know uh even uh it, it would be you know it would seem like a more if there was just one syllable endeavor. after your current syllable bob like yeah bob Baba, or Bobby Sattva, Bobby. Yeah, there it suddenly it gets bizarre. Yeah, but but there's a, there, but yeah, right. There's an implied self-deprecation by saying Dharma of Bob. Right, that's the key. Is there, is an, I've been blessed with the inherently self-mocking name of Bob. Um. So, uh, but I, but I, but I think you know you know from my perspective, like the if someone is going to be taking on this message. It needs that kind of psychological trait. The, the messenger needs that kind of psychological trait. Otherwise, it's going to be it will be uh, you know much more easy to dismiss in a certain sense. Like there's a there's a there's an honesty. There's a there's a recognition of what your place in all of it. And um, and this is why I think it's it's interesting for someone like you to be taking this message forward because it you are I think you straddle uh, a few different worlds nicely. And are able to communicate one world to the other in a way that that might be have, have a kind of stronger force of persuasion. Well, that's nice of you to say. Um, I mean, two of the. Well, go ahead. I'm, so, I, com- God knows to, I don't want to, to stop you now. You're you're you're. Uh, I'm liking this. I'm liking this. Well, no, compared to like someone like me who might not be fortified with the, with the same kind of specific worldview and 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 details within that worldview to make the case compelling. You know, I could say we, we need an upgraded consciousness if we're going to overcome tribalism. But, you, you know, you have the, the historical reach, uh, the, the contextual reach to 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 unpack that and make the case fairly strongly to an audience that might not be privy or, you know, prone to be to be sympathetic to that kind of an idea. Actually, or even I see the need for it. I think you'd be good at that part. The the I, I mean, when I think of the part that maybe is more distinctive to me i mean i'm reminded of the kind of basic split uh i mean there's two paths you can go to in talking about this thing i'm again somewhat ironically calling the apocalypse but the threat that the world could enter a spiral of doom uh and and one is like the policy realm it's like you can say well we're you know we've been uh human society has been kind of evolving, you might say, toward globalization for tens of thousands of years. Here we are on the brink of global community. If we don't solve certain international kind of global problems, most famously climate change, but not only that by any means, various arms control issues, you know, AI, gene splicing, I think there are all kinds of uh, policy issues we need to address. You know, that's one way you can talk about this as a policy matter. And I think um, but my view is that we can't get to the point of seriously tackling those problems until there really is 
a change in human consciousness on a fairly widespread basis. And that's that's the, the thing I kind of said in this issue of the newsletter that you're you're picking up on. There were people in the comments section who were like, oh, God, raising consciousness, please. We've heard this before. This is like, what, what is this, 1969? Did it work that time? I, you know, but um, I just am convinced. I'm not saying it'll work. I'm just convinced that human psychology, what's sometimes called the psychology of tribalism, and specifically some kind of cognitive biases that constitute that, uh, are really fundamentally in the way of us keeping the planet from uh, going over the brink. That is my view. And to tie it into some of your other work, would you, how comfortable would you be with the with the idea that the the, the the biases and the, the the psychological constraints that most people operate from bring them to a perception of the world whereby they see uh, dynamics in zero sum terms more than non zero sum terms. Meaning to to really to apprehend the kind of global problems that you're addressing and want the policy level to address. Um, it requires a perception of the dynamic in non zero sum terms versus zero-sum outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I think there are zero-sum dynamics. And uh, by the way, I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but kind of all the global, pro- all these problems I mentioned that need solving, you know, arms race in space, bioweapons, uh, arms race, um, climate change, other environmental problems. Those are all non-zero-sum problems where, you know, nations could cooperate and achieve a win-win outcome or fail to cooperate, achieve a lose-lose outcome. Um, and I, I do think there is a failure to appreciate how many of those non-zero-sum dynamics they are, how important they are. Uh, at the same time, there are real zero-sum dynamics, you know? There, 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 uh, are, uh, you, you have competitors in the world, you have rivals in the world, you have countries that want to attack you. That, all of that can happen. And I, and I'm not recommending being blind to that. But I, I, I guess what worries me is, is that I think human psychology was designed by evolution to deal with zero-sum dynamics and non-zero-sum dynamics in ways that are subtler than we appreciate. And I can get into some of that. But what worries me is that too often the kind of zero-sum part of our psychology is activated in a way that keeps us from pursuing the non-zero-sum path, and and it's in the interest of people to activate it, especially politicians, but also people on Twitter. These these like you know social media potentates who build up huge followings by activating the tribalistic uh, part of our brain, and and so yeah, I, I I would say I think part of the problem is we don't see the non-zero-sum dynamics, and then there's the the subtler problem of how the activation of kind of the the part of our brain designed to deal with competition and rivalry prevents us from seeing it and and acting on it. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Um, I think maybe one of the things to explore here is what do you see the uh, kind of the a working model for how one's constant consciousness or psychological perspective would evolve? Like, how, how does that 
what are the, what are kind of some of the variables or conditions that support that and and what does it what does it look like and and one thing i just want to sort of throw out there is is there there is this field of of psycho- in psychology known as transpersonal psychology that uh recognizes <clears throat> was i'm okay you're okay the big book there that's a good question. Um, not, not having read it, I'm not sure. I mean, the person, my entr- entree into that was uh, the 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 the, uh, <laughs> the contentious thinker Ken Wilber, who. Um, oh, maybe this is different than. Um... But there is other people. I, uh, Francis Vaughn. I mean, even one of my therapists that I worked with for years was part of the transpersonal psychology movement, which is just recognizing that above and beyond sort of pre-egoic levels of consciousness that we we occupy as a child and then the sort of the egoic level of consciousness that we grow into as an adolescent and adult there exist levels of of being levels of identification levels of, of consciousness beyond the sort of the egoic level that are w- within the, the 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 growth potential of all being of all humans mm-hmm. and 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 tr- typically it's the it's the contemplative mystical traditions that that speak about those higher reaches of of human development um, but more and more you know i'm seeing contemporary teachers today speaking about just is just the 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 normal potential of growth that we all have and it's not something that's that's uh, you know ab- above everybody's means and it's just a question of whether we're willing to 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 support that growth or to to take to take care of that growth. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it turns out I'm okay. You're okay. Huge bestseller long long ago. That was transactional psychology, not <laughs> a different thing. I just I just learned uh, from googling the um yeah uh, I I would say I mean first of all as for Ken Wilber, people have always said I should read him. I never really fact, have because fact, I said yeah, that to you the first time I met you, which was 2003. Yeah, and and do you want a, a replay of your reaction? I can I can predict I I think I can guess, but go ahead. Uh, it was just at the end of the retreat, and you dropped an f bomb. <laughs> I didn't. No, I didn't. Did I? Wow, said, that was that was amazing because that was uh, that was my most transformational retreat. I mean, imagine how bad I am normally if at the end of that retreat I dropped an f bomb. Now I'm sure I didn't say. Well, what did I say? Go ahead. You said something like you're you're like the fifth person that meant to tell me I should read this fucking guy. Oh, okay. Well, that's not so bad. <laughs> not too not too bad, but it was funny. But the reason um, the reason I never do is because he has this whole specialized vocabulary, and whenever and this whole system built up, and whenever I see anything he's written, I think, oh god, it's, it looks like I have to read three of his earlier books before I can even understand this sentence. So I, it's like I, it seems like uh, it would be a long investment. But uh, but anyway, I've heard I've heard good things. Yeah, he's I mean, he's controversial. He has he 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 um, has a kind of an an anti talent for 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 picking gurus uh, that he endorses. So he's he's, he's been yeah, some of them kind of, uh, uh, fell into controversy, as I recall. Exactly. And, I, yeah. and so but um, but the way he speaks about, you know, and, and he's he's more of a synthesizer of lots of different uh, fields of knowledge. But um there's a spectrum of consciousness in his model. And, and so the, the, the three big ones, are, there's the development of the, the, the baby consciousness or pre-egoic consciousness, then sort of conventional level egoic consciousness, and then post-conventional or transpersonal consciousness. Those are the big three with lots of gradations in the, in between. Um, but in, to, to come back to something you were saying, you know, it's not just about policy, 
um, implementation to to fix global issues. It's it's that's that's sort of a an external um, analysis of the problem, but the internal, the subjective side of it all is is the level of the individual's consciousness within that system or those systems, and that will condition how someone both perceives the dynamic they're in and then responds to that dynamic. Yeah, and I think this points to what I consider to be the good news about all this is that, and you mentioned this in your email after you read uh, that issue of the newsletter, is that I do think if you ask, well, what changes in psychology are needed to save the world, it turns out that they're the same changes that are needed to save yourself. In other words, self-help can equal uh, global help. Like, if, if, you, if you ask, like, why do people go to meditation retreats, it's not to save the world, usually. It's because they may have some issue, they may be suffering psychologically, they may be okay, but want to develop a deeper appreciation of some, they want to be, in some sense, happier, better off personally. That is overwhelmingly the main motivation for getting into this stuff. And yet, uh, when you come out of like a, say, a very successful, if I'm allowed to use the word about meditation retreats, meditation retreat, um, you know, you're in a state of mind where it's like, wow, I guess if everybody were like this, it would be a much better world because you're feeling you're, you're less harshly judgmental of people. I maintain you're less in the throes of the kinds of cognitive biases, and I think the two big ones are confirmation bias, which everyone's heard of, attribution error, which a lot of people haven't, maybe we'll have time, you know, we've talked about some of this before, maybe we will today, but um, I think, you know, the pursuit of self-help through this particular path turns you into a better uh, global citizen. Now, uh, what what people ask if they accept that much is, well, okay, but A, is it really a... I mean, first of all, what if just some of us are good global citizens and the rest aren't? Don't they crush us? There's that question. Uh, and then there's a the question of, okay, but is it really necessary? I mean, do we really need a whole lot of uh, global people who are in this frame of mind? Which is, after all, not a, a trivially easy thing to cultivate, right? Or or maintain. It's it's right. I mean, it's like we we get glimpses of it. We're a nicer person for a while, then we're not so nice. I mean, it, it's it, this this. You know, uh, let me put it another way: the enlightenment we alluded to before is like uh, you get a sense on a meditation retreat for what that would be like. But I don't personally get there, and and in any event. You know, three months after the retreat, I'm definitely not there. Uh, this is all a digression by way of saying I don't claim to have maintained any any super laudable state of mind. But 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 just to finish the thought, um, people do ask: Do we really need to like work with such kind of discipline on making at least modest progress? toward transcending the psychology of tribalism, transcending these cognitive biases, is that really necessary to keep the world from entering a spiral of doom? I'm increasingly convinced that the answer is yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> I do think it is. Again, the good news is that this this helping the world can align with helping yourself. That's good news. Bad news is it's not a, 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 a trivially easy path. Right, and... But the good news, too, at least to my mind, is that there are other 
other things emerging or re-emerging, um, namely the psychedelic research, yeah. uh, which, like like you're saying, is is largely being pitched, I think, in terms of uh, healing, self-healing, and 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 whether it's PTSD, end of life, anxiety, um, whatever it might be, addiction, and and the thing is that when people at least what I'm reading, when, when the people have a deep psychedelic experience that, that alleviates whatever ails them, it also comes with a, with a shift in worldview uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that. It, it often does. I'm always reluctant to, you know, uh, kind of casually embrace psychedelics because, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of explosive. In the, you know, I mean, people can have very bad experiences on psychedelic drugs. At the same time, um, when people are very careful... And in good hands, uh, that's much less likely to happen. And people can have very deeply good experiences on them that have enduringly good effects. Um, you know, somewhat of the kind we're talking about, I think, in the, in the sense of, of, of helping you get a little out of the kind of standard, um, highly constrained, uh, mindset that people are in. I suddenly just flashed on, you know, the play Our Town. Have you ever have you ever seen Our Town by Thornton Wilder? I, I think I may, it may have been there's something this, in a, there's an early this, high school curriculum. Yeah, I on. only I only remember there's a part of it that's very Buddhist. I don't remember the exact details, but there's uh, you know, it's about there's something in there about uh, somebody dying and going to heaven, and then looking back at I think at an earlier part of their life or something but the the, the 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 one of the flashes of insight is wow people are so self-absorbed i mean look this was my house and we were living our lives and we weren't even paying attention to each other because we were so wrapped up and there's uh, in, in ourselves you know i didn't even i forget whether it was i didn't notice the beauty of my parents doing this or they didn't or whatever but it's like there's this line like people are in little boxes you know that that it's some that's something like the very line in that in that play, and um, I do think a fairly consistent effect of a not infrequent effect of psychedelics can be to get people out of a box in a certain sense. Again, it's like kids don't try this at home. It's it's not uh, you know it, it 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 it's stuff you have to be careful with. But I think there's more and more actual evidence. There's been a resurgence of actual research. The Johns Hopkins stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, on my own podcast, I had a, a kind of interesting conversation with a, a Zen priest in Switzerland, who uh, he he had trained in, in California at the, at the San Francisco Zen Center. But uh, back in in Switzerland, he was part of a study where it was a I think they had a six or seven day Vipassana retreat. Um, or Zen retreat, one of them. But they, on the fifth day, uh, half the participants received a placebo and half got a pretty strong dose of psilocybin. Um, and then they tracked the changes. And apparently, the the, the, the shifts in, in brain activity were strongest and more, more enduring in the meditators, which was hmm. kind that's of interesting. I, I, yeah, I certainly think. Um, I mean, you know, the meditators that got the psilocybin, <laughs> not the ones that got the placebo, right? I, I, I certainly think, um, you know, psychedelics are kind of famously not an everyday thing. I mean, I don't know anything about microdosing culture, but that's different. Uh, the, the, uh, um, 
I, I, but, but are, you know, kind of heavy psychedelic trips are kind of famously something you don't do every day or every, uh, week. I, 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 um, um, is it Michael, uh, the book, How to Change Your Mind? Um, Michael Pollan, right? Right. Michael Pollan. I, I had him on and he said, you know, and he went through and did all these things and, and, uh, wrote the book about it, these various different drugs. And I asked him what he planned for the future. And he said, maybe like once a year on my birthday or something, do, do psilocybin. And that, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't, uh, probably be a bad regime. Well, whether it's psychedelics or meditation, um, and you don't have to speak about the psychedelic side, but what, what, what is it about the meditation that you see as facilitating whether, whatever you want to call it, the transformation of consciousness, the evolution of psychology, the, the shift of getting someone out of a, a perceptual box that's confining and, and, and kind of imprisoning. <clears throat> yeah. Um, because I think that I, I I would like to hear. I mean, I know this is largely the topic of your of your book. Why Buddhism is true. Yeah. I mean, let me um. Let me try to answer a way that speaks to those. One of the questions I alluded to early, like earlier, like is this really necessary? Um. The. Uh, well, actually, to to that point, can I while you get yeah. your thoughts, let me give yeah. you an analogy because, as you know, I've recently relocated to Maine. Right. So, and I would call myself prior to moving to Maine, I was kind of an urban, an urban idiot in that I, you know, I could function in an urban environment, but I'm not very handy. I really don't know my way around the shop or wood shop or any tools or anything like that. And I come up to Maine and, you know, I'm, I'm living in a very rural town and, uh, and it's the middle of winter and I'm suddenly dealing with the condition of ice everywhere. And so for me personally, this is a, a rapid change in, in environmental conditions. And I don't necessarily have the skill set yet to adapt or to, to function well in those conditions. So what's been happening is one the, last week, I nearly came to my death by uh, skidding out on, on black ice, driving home yeah. at night, started fishtailing in the, just out of nowhere. And, nearly and you don't have ice. time to do what they say, which is steer into the curve, right? It's like, who has time to think that, right? Well, you know, yeah, I had no thought process going on. I just somehow I got between the file coming head on at me and the, the telephone pole to my right. I, I got yeah. through the middle and came out skated, unscathed. So all good there. But my driveway, which is quite long, is just basically a glacial sheet of ice. And uh, to get out there, I've had to use crampons. And so I've been thinking about uh, how wonderful what crampons are, are. Oh, those are crampons. mountain climbing like for you to walk, you mean? Yeah, they, I mean, they're, they're probably more of a, you know, everyday kind of, you don't need to use them on mountains, but they're just you know, slip on, like yak tracky type things. You, you okay. slip them over your boots and you okay. give you, give you traction. But, you know, the thought of me trying to walk on this ice without those crampons is like, I would be falling over and slamming my head and, 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 and knocking myself out every few steps. Um, and it, it, it after reading your newsletter, if, you know, you're, you're describing that there is this rapid cultural and technological change that in many ways has outpaced our, the, the, the growth and evolution of our consciousness. I may be putting words in your mouth there, but that's my sense of it is. And what we need are a kind of cognitive crampons so that we can, we can walk up, upon this new terrain or, or engage with this, this, these developing conditions in a way that, um, you know, we, we don't find ourselves uh, not passed out or knocked out on the, on the ice. 
Right. Yeah, I know. I think um, like social media, that's a technological change that we have so far not adapted to very successfully, I would say. And rather than, um, I mean, it is, you know, a lot of good things have happened on social media, but also as is now kind of well known, um, social media has in some ways activated the psychology of tribalism, exacerbated it. Uh, you know, it has to do with the, the, the algorithm that favors sharing, you know, and, and, and how that winds up appealing to the worst of us sometimes. And it, it leads to people who activate the worst in us, having the most Twitter followers and so on. Um, yeah, and, and something, look, to, something to that point, though, uh, one thing that I remember speaking to Jenny O'Dell about, who wrote How to Do Nothing, uh, was that another feature of so, the social media landscape is that it collapses context. And, and part of our ability to, to, to interpret and make sense of what we're, what the information we're receiving is, is context dependent. And without that context, it's just so much easier for the very things you were just describing, the cognitive biases to come in and, and shape the interpretation. Yeah. I mean, in a number of senses, it's like context in the sense of like, yeah, you you don't understand. You'll see a tweet and like you may not understand that it's sarcastic because you don't have the context of understanding the person. You may not understand what they were replying to when they said it and and what kind of assumed knowledge, you know, what what knowledge they're assuming. Yeah, no, it, that's a big problem. And and you know, some of these problems may be solved uh or at least addressed uh with some success via policy, right? Um, or, or changes that maybe the software gods at Twitter and Facebook, uh, the algorithm gods make for their own reasons. That may happen, but I think it's, it's clear that this is a good example because if you are, I think, more mindful on social media, you will be happier. You will certainly have more equanimity. And by mindful, I mean just in in a uh, pretty straightforward sense of like aware of the feelings that are driving your own behavior on social media. So like if you're if you see something and go, yeah, I'm going to share that. Like if you pause and reflect on what it is that's making you want to share it and ask yourself whether really you have enough knowledge to be confident that sharing it is a good thing. That's an that's an instance of mindfulness. And and I'm maintaining that if you're more mindful on social media, you will be on balance, happier, have more peace of mind, more equanimity, and it will be good for the world. You will do less damage to the world. So that's um, that's the kind. Yeah. If, if, as you're talking about being more mindful on social media, it reminds me of the, the studies that Judd Brewer, who you know yeah, the guy, uh, I know Judd. Um, the psychiatrist doing a lot of research on on meditation now at Brown University in his uh, center there, but um, in his studies on cigarette addiction or nicotine addiction, he would, if I got it right, he would just tell people he wouldn't encourage them to try to stop smoking, exercising willpower to 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 negate the habit, but just encourage them to the study encourage them to be mindful as possible, as present as possible to the experience when they whenever they would light up. Well, whenever they would want a cigarette, it's like. But, but, but it was also that it was the, it was the specific, you know, putting the cigarette to your lip, feeling huh. the tactile, and then and then tasting, you know, really being present to the taste, 
And in most people, when I talked to him, he said most people found it so un, un, unsavory <laughs> that their, their, their enjoyment of the experience dramatically diminished. And I would say the same thing about social media. If you really pay attention, it's not, you, you know, you can do the things you're describing, yeah. but I think you would just become in, uh, profoundly impressed by how unpleasant the whole ecosystem there is. Right. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, the revenge, the impulse for revenge. It's like, I mean, say you're like, you're replying to somebody and you're like, uh, you're going to show them or you're going to talk about somebody in a way that humiliates them or something. And then, you know, you reflect on that. It's like, how good did that really feel? I mean, you know, uh, there must have been something rewarding about it. You did, you know, you're, you, you do it if you do it habitually. But, uh, I, I think there is that kind of reflection too on the, on the, on the quote gratifying part itself. But then separately, there's what I said, which is reflect on the initial impulse. So like with cigarette smoking, if you feel the urge to um, light up and you do succeed in, in pausing and reflecting on that mindfully, you may see that that actually disempowers it. If you observe it uh, with enough kind of objectivity, non-attachment, whatever you want to say, you will see its power waning. And, that, and, and, and that's the place you can get to on social media where, um, you know, you're just, or even with, uh, a related thing, which is, you know, I, I have basically ADD. I just have trouble paying attention. And one thing I do a lot is like, I'm working, if I'm writing something, it may be an, just an email and maybe a piece of writing. I get to a hard part where it's like unpleasant to keep going because I don't know. And I'll suddenly feel these, temptation this like why don't you fire up twitter feeling and when i'm really being uh mindful i i am aware of that moment and i can really just close my eyes and reflect on the feeling itself and it loses its power and that's not easy but it's the kind of uh it's the kind of power mindfulness can give you and again i really think it makes the whole world a better place um, if you have that degree of, uh, I guess you could say self-control. That sounds more old-fashioned and Western than uh, it might be normal in this context. But um, now, now I could, you know, anyway, go ahead. We, we could we could talk more about what, why exactly. I mean, there are non-social media contexts where you would like people to be more mindful as well. That, that more obviously pertain to matters of like war and peace. Um, but, uh, and I'm not saying mindfulness is the only path to becoming the kind of person who is, uh, doing more that's good for the world and more that's good for themselves. I'm not, I'm not saying that. It's just mm -hmm. the path I'm most conversant in. And I think, I think is very well suited to the problem. So one of the phrases that I, 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 I think is interesting from, from Ken Wilbur is that in this path of growth or, or development, um, he often uses the phrase transcend and include that as there's an emergent new dimension of being, it, it doesn't transcend and sort of negate the, the, the prior states or prior levels. It, it transcends and includes it kind of like Russian dolls ever expanding. And, um, and I think that's, it's important to, 
at least I've, I've noticed this experientially that, you know, that you can have the, the kind of a broader, less contracted, less identified sense of self, sense of consciousness, but it, it doesn't negate the patterns of the sort of the previous level of being or previous egoic sense that you had those. So, so for the example of, you know, being more focused and, and, and keeping your concentration on your writing, you know, you, you weren't able to stay focused by transcending, having distractions, you're becoming better able to recognize the patterns of distraction and release yourself from them, from them. And, and um, the same way with cognitive biases, I'd say, it's like, my sense is you don't, you don't, you don't negate or get rid of, you don't erase the cognitive bias. You, you kind of wake up out of an, a level of identity that's attached or fixated within the bias. Okay. So we had a, a little uh, technical issue there. As I recall, you were asking me about uh, this Ken Wilber idea that I'm not that familiar with that as you, I mean, he has this whole, I guess, elaborately worked out, path of progress, right? There are these stages and there are these levels you attain and stuff, which has an analog in in, in Buddhist tradition as well, in certain Buddhist traditions, but uh, he's got his own version of that, I think. And are, are you, is part of that idea uh, that you never, I guess I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, one thing I would say about, just to get back to like the cigarette smoking example, and even the cognitive biases, and in general with mindfulness, you don't like fight. You don't fight the urges that are causing trouble. You just kind of step back and observe them, and that that disempowers them. But uh, but it sounds like that's not exactly what you're saying. Wilbur is saying when he um, am I right? Well, that's part of it. I mean, I think I mean I think the first step is just to pay attention to to whatever the energy is, whether it's a you know, uh, uh, an impulse of ill will or a strong craving, you, you know, whatever is ailing you or, or arising, you just pay attention to that. I think the, the process that that facilitates is that, um, you know, in a phenomenological sense, whatever you're observing, whatever object you're observing, you, you're taking it as an object, no longer as the subject that's aware of the object. So the things you normally are subjectively identified with, like say thoughts and feelings, they, be, they start becoming very, in one sense, objects within your awareness. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, and that, that sort of unblends your, your, the, the location of your center or the center of your own identity that, that unblends it from being kind of attached or, or, uh, contracted around the experience or the sensation or the thought or the feeling and, and, and shifts it into the, the, the more pure subjectivity that's aware. Yeah. Um, and I think that's to me in my model, at least the, the way I conceptualize it, that's the, 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 the fundamental uh, way that meditation does facilitate this kind of growth. And, and, it, and it's, it's a slow process, but you kind of hinted at this. It's like you can you can have peak experiences of higher levels of development, and you could even make in our case, which I think Wilbur does, and many of the wisdom traditions do, is that the ground of one's being is ever present. Like the ground of your awareness um, is always present. It's just that it gets, you could say, maybe it gets more easily recognized at higher stages of sort of psychological development. 
Um, but, but that said, whatever stage you're at, you still have access to the lower levels. So like an adult has access to their infantile, uh, states of consciousness and can sometimes get those can come out as we have all seen. Yeah. Um, you don't quit having feelings for one thing and, and you don't, uh, you but even the very, very, very selfish, selfish, self-aggrandizing feelings, the, 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 the tyrannical feelings of an infant, those those are still present and, and nested within sort of more restraining, culturally shaped, egoic levels of. of uh, yeah, I mean, there I, uh, I, I, I I'd be agnostic. I mean, um, it's starting to sound not quite Freudian, but uh, having a little. Uh, what would I say? Uh, anyway, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I'm out of my depth or something. Um, the, uh, you know, and also I should, you know, I'm not, and this is why I'm not a true bodhisattva, you know, I'm not, I'm not like, I have not, you know, there are people I know who have put in, well, you have put in a lot more time on, uh, the cushion probably and, but I certainly know people who have, you know, they've done like months. I'm not saying this is you, but they've done like months of, of, of silent, three month silent meditation retreats. And, and I assume that Ken Wilbur is somebody who, who did intensive regimes of various kinds to try to reach and, and maintain higher levels of consciousness and so on. And, and like, you know, my longest meditation retreat is two weeks. Um, I, uh, have not been able to arrange my actual life in a way that is consistent with uh, the maintenance of some kind of like highly commendable state of consciousness. Although I like to think it's a little higher than it would be if I had never uh, discovered meditation. Um, so I'm not, you know, like I haven't been through the jhanas or any, you know, these various, uh, various hierarchies people try to ascend. Um, so I, I, I'm a, I'm a witness of limited, uh, expertise. Well, uh, okay. There's a way that sometimes, and this is where, I mean, this whole conversation, one, and I think one of the things you and I share is, is the, the, the concern that speaking around about this stuff can, can carry with it a whiff of sanctimony. Like, you know, we're better than everybody else because we've been doing these things and yeah, and they're, and they're, they're lesser levels of consciousness people whatnot um so it i'm trying to think of how to proceed here the um i think a you might be being a little bit too humble about your own uh experience um you know we've talked a lot i've heard you talk with other people about it and you know you've had some pretty mind-blowing experiences in meditation and, yes. and even just what you said about at the end of your first meditation retreat you felt profoundly different. And I remember mm-hmm. you, you had the vibe of someone who was profound. I didn't know you well at that point. I just met you, but you definitely had the sense of someone who was in such an altered state from their normal default state that they were kind of tripping over themselves with, with, with awe or, uh, I had had a very profound experience at that retreat. Aside from the normal, well, quote normal, pretty common, I would say, uh, almost transformation of psychology that can happen in a good retreat aside from that, aside from like emerging 
uh, from it more judge less judgmental people, more appreciative of beauty, much more equanimous, and so on. Aside from that, I just had a completely mind blowing experience, and that that can happen. It cannot happen. It's happened once with me, and that's what you were seeing the yeah. aftermath of. Right, and I think to speak generally about the retreat experience, as you know, the first few days are more or less hell hellish right there's it's it's your people are when they go on retreat they encounter what are in buddhism referred to as the hindrances difficult mind states of desire aversion restlessness sleepiness and doubt that are kind of the main headers for all the afflictive difficult emotional states that that are made apparent because when you are not moving around so much when you're not distracting yourselves with endless distractions um, those those energies just reflect more clearly in the simplicity of the container. Like the container of, of the retreat is so simple, it, it, it's like a, a mirror that reflects back your own uh, reactive states. So the first few days of retreat are just that, just getting familiar with the, all the levels of ways your mind turns out reactivity. Now, if you stay with it, um, and, and I, I say this as, as having seen and talked to many people who have gone through this same exact cycle, you stay with it, long enough, somewhere around the third or fourth, maybe fifth day, all those reactive states, they may still be there, but they no longer produce the agitation or the, the kind of um, it, it, suffering, the, like the, the distress that they normally yeah. cause. And I think for me, that was what was kind of mind blowing. That was the mind blowing moment, which is like, wow, I can like, and, and I don't feel disconnected from it. Right. either like and that's and that's a key thing it's that most people like a casual observer might hear this and say well that's because you're facilitating or creating a kind of detached passivity that's disengaged and not interested and, and hiding out in a cave or something but that's not really what the what the experience is experience is one of great intimacy with with what is arising but you're relating to it i would argue from a different level yeah. of your being like it's i, I like, mean when 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 feelings are most in control of us we're actually not very aware of them Right. I, I mean, right. and 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 it's when you're more aware and you see them rise, arise, and then uh, your awareness of them allows them to pass away without grabbing on to you and controlling your behavior. But you're actually more aware. You're actually, in a certain sense, more in touch with the feelings uh, when you're in that state. And that's why they have less control over you. And, and, and one way of describing it is you're just not, you know, you, it could be an unconscious identification, but on one level, your your sense of self is has fused with the, the, the content of that, that feeling. Uh, you're saying uh, in the course of a retreat that can happen, that the sense of self has actually fused with the feeling. No, I think that's the that's the default that most that's people are default. running, good, running, good. running around. Good, good, because I was right? going to have so, to say, no, my experience is different. But exactly, it, it is Yes, you, the, the the feelings, the feelings are you normally, and you're not very aware of them, and in that sense, not very in touch with them. They are in touch with you, <laughs> in a way, and you're and you're not so in touch with them. Right, right. So you know, in your in your sense of it, um, you know, I, I think there's different ways that that the meditation can be approached that will facilitate this kind of transformation and. One way is, I think, which is the way you try to articulate, if I hear you correctly, is that the meditator would would focus very closely on 
the sort of the micro phenomena of that feeling of the arising of the feeling and how the feeling conditions the mind and then, and then how you're relating to it. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of one model of mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. Right. And so there's that. And then there's also, there's, I I think what I'm interested in uh, sort of watching develop developmentally or, or culturally in the meditative world in the West is that, more and more, I have seen teachers really shifting into less emphasis on the specifics of content, so the specifics of what's actually happening, and, and shifting the emphasis in the meditation to the context within which things are known. And that, and that too, can sh- will facilitate a kind of shift in relationship, which doesn't necessarily need as much fine-grained focus. So, so what would an example of that be? Like... Uh, I'll give you an example. Like I was at a, at a, at a, at a retreat and some guy is falling asleep. He's snoring. And it was like, you know, my first reaction is highly aversive, right? Like, it's like, like, first of all, I, I felt, I, I saw me, I felt myself wanting to open my eyes to identify the guy. Like, who is this asshole? So I can bring him to justice or something. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I was aware of that. I was aware the aversive feeling, I was aware of the urge to identify him. I mean, normally you would just do this, right? Normally you would just go, who is this fucking asshole? And look at him. But because I was on retreat, I saw the feelings arise and and didn't really engage them. Okay, that's being aware of the feelings. What would being, what, what would mindfulness of the context be in that case? Uh, you know, you could, you, you sort of, you observe what's arising or what's, what's experienced prior to the arising of the snore and what's, what's there post the arising or the, or the, the cessation of the snore. So when like before it arises and before it ceases or after it ceases, there's, there's the, the negative space of the context that, that allows it to be known. This is pretty deep. <laughs> well, no, if you, I mean, it, it, the, the way, um, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, which I've practiced in some, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who's sort of this American monk who was a senior, uh, the abbot of a, a monastery in England for several decades, um, he puts it like this. He said, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like the space in a room. So noticing the space in the room. Mm-hmm. Normally, when one enters the room, one's uh, sort of perceptual apparatus go to the objects in the room and you notice what's hanging, what where plants are about and what, what objects are there. But what the perception doesn't normally pick up is the space in the room itself, which is the, the, the context that allows all those objects to exist. If there was concrete filling in the room, there would be no space for any mm-hmm. recognition to occur. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, there's this dimension of one's being, which is analogous to space. It's this, 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 this field of percep- field of awareness within which all the objects of cognition are being known. And, and when that is uh, sort of recognized and, and really remembered, um, you just learn to rest within that. That's, and that's well, yeah, I mean, there is, uh, I, I mean, I don't know if this is, this, but there is, there's a kind of a, I don't know, the identification, the stillness that you can, reach in meditation and kind of the identification with it. I, I do, I do kind of see what you mean is, is, is like you're more 
identifying with the space within which all this stuff is happening than with the happening in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of now recalling kinds of places I've gotten on, uh, retreat. It's like, uh, you know, and it's like, I mean, this yeah, is, and, all, and I, you, yeah. you often, you often use the example, I think of, of, of sensing sort of a, you've begun to a state where you're aware of your knee pain and and then realizing the knee pain was no different from the chirping of a bird. Right. Now, it's it's funny that you say that because when I thought like times I've identified more with the stillness, with the space than with the things occupying it, I I thought of that moment that I described uh, in my book on Buddhism um, where I felt a tingling in my foot, I heard a bird singing and I thought, uh, it just felt like the tingling in my foot was no more a part of me than the bird singing, and the bird singing was no less a part of me. And 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 that's significant because that means the sense of the bounds of self are starting to dissolve. And and that was the context in which I I I I, uh, I recounted that episode. But absolutely, there's a yeah. I, I I kind of see what you mean. I kind of see what you mean. Yeah. It's a ni- nice place to be. Right, no, it's just a, it's and, a different And, you know, way. there are people, this is what's amazing, that I do believe there are people who walk around, go through life. I mean, these are often people who've worked very hard at their meditative practice, but go through life with a certain amount of uh, of that. You know, like walk through life and uh, with that kind of stillness, and yet, they're totally they're totally in touch with what's going on, right? Um, you know, I'm going to say say something. That will, if it, if I haven't said things that sound too woo already, I'll say something that sounds woo now. I did last weekend. I did an online retreat with two teachers uh, from the Insight Meditation Society. Actually, three teachers, but two are a couple from Hawaii: Steve Armstrong and Kamala Masters. Um, mm-hmm. And they've practiced in for decades in the, the various. Uh, Burmese traditions that have influenced a lot of insight meditation practice in the West. And having sat with them before, I was aware that, you know, the, the teaching itself was, I, I've heard many of the things they said this, in the same exact phrases that they've used over year, over the years. But what impressed me on this retreat, even online, was that just being with them as they sat, as they, we would be meditating together online, I remembered sitting with them and just feeling that there was something in there. There was a gravitas in their presence, just watching them meditate that you could, I can't put my finger on what it was, but you could tell they were not being fooled by the, by the impressions of their mind. It just, there was this, this rock solid presence um, that I can't attribute to anything other than a felt sense of it. Um, and, and I think that speaks to what you're saying. You know, people who practice for a long time, it's like that shift in their consciousness is not the result of, um, you know, kind of, uh, capricious divine intervention. It's, it's just, it's like, just like there's a, there's upper limits in, in athletic performance. There's going to be an upper limits in, in, you know, human consciousness if someone is training themselves in that realm. And, and to you borrow another kind of sort of, uh, cliche Ken Wilber phrase, but the, the idea that we access initially we access states of being, higher states of being, but with practice those states can be stabilized as traits. And I think that's speaking to what your concern, primary concern, is how does sufficient percentage of the human species shift into 
a better or higher state of consciousness whereby the tribalistic impulses and cognitive biases are not going to to run the whole ship into the into the rocks. Yeah, and I want to emphasize it's like not everyone uh not nearly everyone has to acquire uh the state of mind that you're describing in these two teachers who 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 um you know it's like um I, I saw a, a poll today about like American attitudes toward different countries, favorable, unfavorable. And there's like a, just a, you know, there are huge differences. Like everyone hates China and Iran. Um, everyone loves England and Canada, which coincidentally speak the same language we do. Hmm. Um, uh, the, um, and it's like, I, I think thinking this way, Look, not that uh, various governments don't do uh, bad things, sometimes including ours. Some governments do worse things. I'm not denying any of that or, or trying to be a cultural uh, complete relativist or anything. But I think, what, you know, it, it, it's it's a well-established fact that once you start uh, putting people or groups of people in the very good or very bad group, it shapes the way you think about them uh, in ways that may, to get back to the beginning, may impede seizing non-zero-sum opportunities to cooperate, to cool things down, rather than amp them up. And it's not like you need a bunch of Americans to be gurus to accomplish this. You do need uh, a certain number of Americans to have moments where, through some combination of of kind of relative equanimity, relative objectivity, and, and you know, just access to some information maybe about the actual world situation, they revisit their assumption that this one government is uniquely horrible, this one country is uniquely horrible, uh, and, and, and at least at that moment, they revisit it fundamentally enough so that it shapes their, their view in the future. And, and they don't, they don't buy into, um, they're they're less susceptible to the U.S. government, um, you know, propaganda. That's what it is about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And um, so I just want to emphasize, I think, you know, modest amounts of progress, which is the only level I maintain on any consistent basis, um, can, can help you, uh, for example be a better citizen online, be a happier citizen online, and can help you be a better American citizen and global citizen in the sense of just having a, a clearer view of the picture. Th that, that's, you know, uh, again, I, I think, like, I, I, I love to talk about, uh, like, enlightenment as a serious concept. Like, what, how, how close could you get to what would something that would merit the term enlightenment. And I don't rule out the possibility that some people really have. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't, but I still like to think of, I like to, I like to talk about these, um, these levels of ascension, so to speak, these levels of transcendence of the ordinary crude psychology in which we are normally trapped. But I right, also right. want to emphasize so, it's like you don't have to attain nirvana to become a, a, a significantly happier person. 
and a better citizen and global citizen. I want to emphasize that. Sure. So you can, you can, I mean, you can, you can, you can put the, the goalposts of the big enlightenment wherever you want it. Right. And, but before that, there's going to be many, many moments of micro enlightenments or micro awakenings. And I, and I would say, you know, just to the, this very, very simple, the, the moment you wake up to the fact that you're aware of anger versus being, you know, lost in fantasy revenge moments, you know, that is a moment of, of a micro moment of awakening of sorts. And, yeah. and you just, and, and the practice is just building, building one of those moments upon the next. Um, so, yeah. No, just Everyone. yesterday I had, you know, this whole like pandemic thing. And then, you know, we, where I live, uh, we've had a winter that's more like the ones you're having where you live routinely th- than usual. So like my mm-hmm. front lawn has been covered in snow for now, I think five weeks. And that's really unusual for here. And it's like impeded. I won't get into what kinds of exercise I usually get and everything, but it's really been a constraining factor. And like yesterday, I just realized like, my mind is in a bad, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, man, I'm just reacting to everyone negatively. It's just like, this is out of control. And, um, th- those little, that's a little triumph. You know, that moment is a little triumph. And, and, uh, for most of us, it's going to be a series of setbacks and a series of triumphs. And you want a high ratio of triumphs to setbacks. And, but that can make a big difference. Just, just changing the ratio. Mm-hmm. Something we don't may not have time to get into now, but maybe we can flag it for the future is that, you know, connected to that shift from being identified with content to being more identified with the context or the awareness within which content is being known. You know, that can, that can also sound like, you know, you're a form of detachment. You're stepping back and just resting as the witness and not really engaged with what you're aware of. But uh, my sense of this, and you know, this is born out of at least the stuff I read, is is that with the with the dawning or the process of waking up to more and more of what you are and what your relationship to the world you're in is, you also start to see more clearly the unflattering, disp- uh, displaced, repressed features of your own being that you haven't really taken into consideration or allowed to, it hasn't, it hasn't been able to be seen before or recognized. And I do think there's a way that, and this is kind of a Jungian idea, but like if to the extent that you have, have, have dissociated or repressed something, you will you know, project it out on others and then reject it in them. And I think there's like with the tribalism we're seeing now, there's a lot of that going on where people are kind of not owning sort of, the darker sides within their own psyche or the, the, the collective psyche and then projecting it on the other and kind of going to war with that. Yeah. I mean, projection is a whole, uh, it's an interesting question. I mean, there is the correlation, I think that, uh, not recognizing the dark side in yourself, uh, makes you more likely to see a a dark side, an alleged dark side of of people, there is that correlation. Whether the dynamic that's going on there is projection in the was this originally a Freudian concept projection? Um, I think maybe it was. But whether whether it's whether it's whether that's why I mean, there's another. I mean, I mean, I mean, another way of descri- of explaining the correlation is just what we've said is that. 
if you are more aware of the dark side of you, of, of the of, of the impu- the darker impulses, that disempowers them, and those are the impulses that were creating the darker image of the person. So, it's it's in yeah. that scenario not so much that the the the, the unexamined darkness projects. It's just that like the definition of the darkness in you is to have unflattering images of certain kinds of people. Not everyone, not everyone, but but to do that. And then if you examine that part of you and disempower of it, it you won't have that so much anymore. You won't have such warped images of other people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, I think that actually helped to think about that, but I think that that's another so probably this, more accurate way of putting it. Um, so we've been talking more than an hour now. Um, God, there's so much we could cover, but I think we've covered some stuff we hadn't covered before. Now you, um, uh, you mentioned you had done some reading. Did you want to get into, uh, you read some Alan Watts and some, uh, and some Krishnamurti, um, I'm going to the Alan Watts party and Krishnamurti. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more or less what I just said. It's that, you know, you know, Alan Watts has this idea probably mentioned in many of his books, but you know, before you, before the, 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 the good natured person tries to do good in the world, make sure that they make sure that they open to the totality of what's in the, inside themselves before they try to try to fix the world outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, speaks to what we were just talking about. Now, I also saw you sent me some marked up pages. He said something else that is interesting just in the context of Trump. Uh, Here's the quote. In the foreseeable future, there are going to be thousands and thousands of people who detest and abominate Negroes, not the term we would use now, communists, Russians, Chinese, Jews, Catholics, beatniks, homosexuals, and, quote, dope fiends. Uh, These hatreds are not going to be healed, but only inflamed by insulting those who feel them. And the abusive labels with which we plaster them, squares, fascists, rightists, know-nothings may well become the proud badges and symbols around which they will rally and uh, consolidate themselves, nor will it do to confront the opposition in public with, uh, huh, this is interesting. I'm not sure I buy this, but nor will it do to confront the opposition in public with polite and nonviolent sit-ins and demonstrations while boosting our collective ego by insulting them in private. Well, okay, I see the point. He's against the insulting them in private. I mean, I, I have... I've been saying for several years, like, calling Trump supporters racist is not going to increase the amount of actual racism among Trump supporters, and it may, and it may, it may increase it. So I was kind of, I was kind of happy to see that. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, uh, that, I, I mean, I have to say, I've appreciated your writing on this. I mean, this is, I, I catch myself getting into some pretty righteous states in response, reaction to the news. And, you know, not to give your newsletter too strong of a plug, but it, there is a sobering, uh, sort of effect that, that your perspective and, 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 and commitment to that perspective has. Cause it, I mean, and, and I, and I, and I, I, I do give you a lot of credit for that. It's, it's not, um, there aren't enough, enough people, I think, trying to argue your position or the, that that particular view from more of a centrist uh, angle. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned context. Uh, part of it is, I mean, I am, one of my hobby horses is cognitive empathy, which doesn't mean feeling their pain. It just means 
view a understanding how they see the world and perhaps going from there into the inquiry of why they see the world that the way they do but even getting to that that first question like how might this person be seen <laughs> how right, might the world right. look through their eyes like that that it sounds so simple it's very hard it's very and, hard and there are there is a cognitive bias that makes it hard. I mean, that's the aforementioned attribution error. We 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 talked about that before. Um, we, we don't have time to get deeply into it now. But I mean, quickly, it is the uh, it's a tendency we have. It plays out differently in enemies and allies. But with with enemies, with rivals, enemies. Uh, what we tend to do, do is when they do something bad, we say, yeah, that is, they did that because that's the kind of person they are. It's, you know, there's this essence of badness in them. That's them being true to their nature when they're bad. When they do something good, we say, well, they were just showing off. They were just, what it was something circumstantial, situational that accounts for their good behavior, but something dispositional, something about the nature of them that accounts for their, their uh, bad behavior. And, you know, so if you define Trump supporters as the enemy and then you're in that mode of looking at them and they say something bigoted, you, you just go, yeah, that's what they are. They're bigots. We're done. That's the end of the inquiry. That's their essential nature. That's the end of the explanation. They've got this bigotry thing in them rather than asking, well, I mean, how did they get that way? It must be a way, unless you don't have like a scientific frame of mind. There must be some series of causal forces. Could be genes. Maybe they have a bigot gene. Could be early environment. Uh, maybe they had some run-in with people of some ethnic group. Could be their their son uh, lost his job and it's the job was taken by Latino immigrants. Could be a billion things, but... Um, if you if you just settle for the essentialist explanation, it's just essence of them coming through when they do something bad. You're not even going to ask that question. And we should say, by the way, that Buddhism is very anti-essentialist, and in, in, in a way that I think is not totally unrelated to this. You know, and to that point, I just the anti-essentialist nature of Buddhism. Um, I just reminded myself recently of a story about a, a disciple of the Buddha named Angali Mala. Have you heard of him? No. You ever come across him? I probably came across it at one point. So but the, the, I just started reading about this a couple weeks ago. Um, but the the basic story is that for a variety of reasons, um, this person, Angli Mala, is so named because he, he's a serial killer. And he, he, he basically kills people and as a souvenir of his killing – takes their, their their right little finger and stitches it into a mala bead, a garland that he wears around his neck. So he has a, a garland of all his victims, little right little fingers on his neck. Hmm. Um, and, and he is a <laughs> disciple of the Buddhas, you're saying? Not yet, not yet, not yet. Not yet. He, <laughs> um, okay, good. He hadn't got there yet. Um, but he, he was, the Buddha, he was meant to somehow, this is the part that I, it's too complicated to explain, but he was meant to kill a thousand people. And uh, he was at 999, and he was living in some forest near, near I think, Savati, uh, important Buddhist town. And the Buddha was walking through the forest. Angli Mala saw him, saw you know his thousandth finger uh, there in, in robes, and and proceeded to chase after the Buddha to kill him. 
And in this story, he's not able, even though Angulimala is very physical, physically capable, he's not able to catch up to the Buddha who's walking slowly and serenely. And he's getting frustrated by the fact that he can't catch the Buddha until finally he says, he demands that the Buddha stop. He yells at him, stop. Um, and the Buddha turns around in kind of a, a Zen-like way and says, I've already stopped. It's you that needs to stop. And at that point, there's sort of this, this transformation in, in Angulimala's consciousness, and he becomes a disciple of the Buddha and attains full enlightenment. And he's, 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 he's used to, re- to remind people of this inessential nature of, of one's being, that, that it can develop. It's not fixed one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so even with that really heinous karma, Salvation is still possible. So, so Bob, I think we need to put. So, there's hope for me. Is that what you're saying? There's still hope for me. There's more hope for both of us than either one of us realize. Because I, I have not yet killed 999 people, right? Uh, so far as I know. Well, that's good. That is encouraging. Um, this is a theme in a lot of religions. Uh, you know, there's no sense. There's no such thing as somebody who's too far gone. Um, uh. So but, but you're right. But right. I mean, I and I've been feeling this for the last several years. And this again, I appreciate your writing is that um, it's very easy, not just to, to just summarize someone as a bigot, but then from there, the, it's it's a it's a gesture of dehumanization. And that's that's the really the, the corrosive piece of it all is that we no longer see the humanity in the other. And, and it's an impediment to actual understanding. It's it's right. it's it's just it's unenlightened in that sense. Uh, to say, well, they did that because that's the kind of person they are. Well, obviously, at the point they did it, they were in some sense that kind of person, but there must be, you know, there must, must be an explanation. Um, anyway, uh, so this has been great. And, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, we're getting on. Um, I was just going to say that we should, oh, well, I was thinking about you and your, your book project and, um, and specifically thinking about, the audience that you have in mind, like is, is, and I always hate when people ask me like, who's your target audience for, for any particular project. But um, do you have a sense of that? Like if you were trying to reach people, a specific niche of, of audience uh, reader, what would that, who would that look like? That's a good question. I mean, this, this experiment I'm doing, I kind of stumbled into it first of all. So, I've been doing this newsletter for a while. It's the non-zero newsletter. Uh, it, there was no charge. Subscription was free. And, and it's still the case that mo- you can subscribe for free. You get less stuff. But, uh, and there's still a lot of subscribers who, 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 who get the, the less stuff. But, but I did just a few weeks ago try this thing of charging for subscription for, for practical reasons. Um, and, uh, and and it was uh, it was uh, a couple weeks after starting that I just thought I had entertained the idea of using the newsletter as a place to develop the book, but I kind of felt like okay, so I've got you know this is a uh, a much smaller number of people than the overall subscription to the newsletter, but they presumably uh, are w- would be more forgiving than average of me, right? I mean less less judgmental, less harshly judgmental. So it's 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 an it's an audience in which I feel it's a community in which I feel comfortable, um, you know, just trying stuff out with, without feeling worrying too much about embarrassment or seeming too grandiose or just 
throwing something out half baked and so on. So I'm I'm doing that and uh it's so so anyway the the connection to your question is like you know is there a danger of doing that? I mean I mean are they too indulgent? Are they uh you know cuz I'm I'm soliciting feedback from them. I'm I'm reading the comments they make when I write something about the book in the newsletter and uh I mean, the good news is there's a real diversity of reactions, you know, uh, so that to s- some extent puts to rest my concern that it's too homogeneous an audience, I guess. Or, or you know, there are people who, like I said, somebody's like, oh, what, you're going to raise consciousness? Um, and there are people who are like, you know, um, climate change, climate change, climate change. Um, whereas I think the problem is larger than that. You know, I mean, I mean, I think the set of policies. So I'm getting, uh, a diversity of feedback. The, uh, I guess the answer to your question is I don't really know. I, I mean, I do, but, but I, I feel, I, I guess I, uh, the conviction I'm increasingly, uh, in the throes of is that there is going to have to be grassroots progress in the way we view these things. We can't keep letting our politicians buy with, uh, you know, amassing power by deceiving us. And I don't even think they're all trying to do that. It just works that way. Mm-hmm. That, like, if they demonize a country, it's good for them politically. It just works that way. And if that's not going to work, um, we're going to – there's going to need to be – Somewhat broad-based change in, in in psychology, in in the way we process the news, and in our capacity to do it uh, in a state of uh, of equanimity and with some objectivity. So now, if you look at all the people who are going to need to be reached, I'm not the person to reach them all. You know, it's like you you maybe I'll reach some people who reach some people. You know, it's like. You, you just uh, you speak the language you're comfortable with. I guess, I guess my my answer is I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time asking myself that question because I'm just naturally not not good at communicating with 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 certain constituencies probably, and I, I probably shouldn't spend a lot of time trying. And I'm going to just um, speak in a way that I feel is comfortable and and hope that. Uh, even though I'm not going to reach nearly everybody or nearly every kind of person, uh, I'll be one of many people contributing to the cause. Yeah, planting seeds, as you said in your newsletter. Yeah, I think that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, the reason I asked is that I feel like there's a. I mean, you're obviously highly endowed with intelligence, and 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 I think you probably have a very intelligent audience and they are, you know, college educated. And I mean, I, I started listening to you because it felt like a continuation of, of college seminars that I was in. And I really appreciated that and, and how you, how you facilitate things. Um, so it, it, it's, it's sort of like the level of consciousness where people have, you know, have, it's not that they're anti-scientific, but they, they, they kind of see the, the limitations of a, a kind of scientific, rational worldview or way of, of, of a, or a particular level of seeing things that, that is bankrupt at this point. It's not able well, to apprehend. Yes and no. Lot. I mean, I personally think, I mean, my book on Buddhism 
was an attempt to, you know, it was kind of a largely scientific argument that like mindfulness meditation and, and, uh, I mean, it wasn't a conventionally scientific argument. It wasn't like, oh, studies show kind of argument, but it was, uh, in a certain sense, grounded in a scientific worldview and trying to argue that, uh, it, it, it's, it's a mindfulness is a move toward rationalism, toward enlightenment in that sense. And, uh, you know, I'm not, as you yeah, know, no. I'm not a su- super wooish advocate of Buddhist philosophy, but, um, so but I think that's what, that's what I'm getting at is that there's an audience that will, would not be, uh, in, interested or sympathetic to a, a wooish articulation of this stuff, which is what most, you know, myself included here, most Buddhist slash yogic folks sound like when they try yeah. to speak to it. They don't necessarily have the cognitive philosophical scientific discipline to, 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 to parse the topic in a way that appeals to a non-woo audience. Yeah. I mean, on the academic thing, there, there are people who say I'm too academic, and I think maybe that's, uh, that's right, and that I, that I should, like, preach more. And, uh, and maybe they're right. But, <laughs> but this is the evolution of Bob, Bob. the Bodhisattva. Uh, yes, we'll get to the Bodhisattva part. We've, we've definitely attained Bobhood. We'll get to the Bodhisattva part. Uh, later. So, um, we hope. All right. So, so thanks, Josh. This is great. Uh, let's, pleasure, uh, Bob. let's plug <laughs> our wares. Uh, you, now is it, is, uh, what is your Twitter handle? It's, uh, is it middle? Middle way, Josh. Middle I don't do much. Way, I, middle, I, I've taken a hiatus from Twitter. Not that You're I was not ever on very Twitter much. Okay. Not yeah. I sort of just, the, whatever, every day sublime podcast. Uh, and you are a yoga instructor, and you're doing uh, a lot of stuff online now, as everyone is. Yep. Uh, in pandemic times, but you probably will will continue to do that afterwards, right? Yeah, I think this online shift is part of the new normal in my world. Yeah. Okay. Which is nice. I, yeah. It's uh, nice. Less travel, but yeah. Everyone should listening should should sign up and become a paid member of the non zero thing be, newsletter because. One thing that you held before was, I remember when you, I think you started launching the newsletter, you were saying that your hope would be that it would allow people to know that they would have a digest of world events or, or, or current events, which would allow them to step back from kind of a, an addictive consumption of online sources. And um, even though, and that was when the, the schedule of the newsletter was once a week. Um, I didn't find that sufficient enough. I, I couldn't go from Saturday evening to Saturday evening without dipping into other news. But with a, with a greater uh, publishing frequency on your end, um, I I'm definitely finding it easier to to pull back from. Well, and they're and they're a little uh, they're a little shorter than some of the newsletters were because people can only di- digest so much in a day. I mean, I hope that my uh, focus on this book writing thing in the newsletter won't push out too much discussion of current events. We do one regular thing you can count on is on Fridays, we're putting out a summary of kind of foreign policy stuff. And we try to include uh, examples of ways in which the American processing of foreign policy stuff is being warped by what's called the blob, which is the the term that uh, for the kind of the, the part of the foreign policy establishment that has held sway for low these many years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there is that. Uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to get like three out a week. There's something or other in the middle of the week. That, that'll that vary. Um, 
and then something book related on on Monday. So far, I'm sticking with that. But thanks for the plug. There is and you then, can also subscribe and not pay, and and something will show up every once in a while in your right, inbox. Right. Not sure what it'll be. Something. Well, as a consumer of one, I would say the the shorter formatting is is helpful. It's, yeah, it's yeah. I I had my, been going kind of overboard. Uh, more frequent and shorter is better. Yeah. Just All like right. practice. Just like it's better to practice shorter amounts, but more frequently than one occasional. What is, long what is your practice these days? Oh, we're going to go there. Oh, we don't have to. It's a short. <laughs> you know, it doesn't take long to say. <laughs> take, take. You know. Um, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm in between thirty minutes and an hour a day sitting, and I very grateful to be able to take a long walk in nature most days too. Mm-hmm. Walks are nice. Yep. And you? Where are you at? I'm between 30 and 40 in the morning. Maybe next time we can talk about why I think 60 minutes is easier than 30. We should. We should. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, good luck convincing me of that. <laughs> no, I can see the point. I can totally see. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not dissimilar to why a long, like a week-long retreat is easier than a weekend retreat. That's way better. A week-long yeah. is way better than a weekend. Yep. <laughs> so maybe you can't convince me. No, I can, I can see the logic. But yeah. we should talk about it anyway we'll down back. the road. All right. So there will be another another Dharma Bob <laughs> conversation. Thank you for initiating these and well, and Dharma, I think we maybe talk about it with people back at the at the at the home office about whether we want to call it Dharma Bob Bob <laughs> We'll get back to you when we've uh, and puns are terrible. I apologize for that one. When we've run that by the focus group, you'll be the first sure. to to see the results. Okay. Well, well, thank you. Good luck with the ice. You too. Take care. Okay.